Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of changemakers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. Vincent Stanley is informally known as Patagonia's chief storyteller. Day to day, he's the company's director of philosophy, where he works to ensure that the company's culture remains true to its origins, while also adapting to the challenges it faces today, a journey of change and resilience. As one of the original Patagonia employees, Vincent has seen the company through its most important transitions, particularly when it made the decision to be a pioneer in the retail space in thinking about and addressing its impact on nature. In addition to his role at Patagonia, Vincent guest lectures at Yale's Business School part of each year and advises other companies on how best to lead with purpose. Now let's get to my conversation with Vincent Stanley. So, Vincent Stanley, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. I've been uh, so looking forward to this this interview, uh, both because I love Patagonia and because your title is the Director of Philosophy uh, at Patagonia, which right away uh, sets you apart and certainly sets Patagonia apart. <laughs> well, uh, I've, I've been with the company since its inception in 1973, with a little, a little bit of time off for good behavior, but... Uh, I've been there most of those years. And uh, when I gave up operational uh, responsibilities to become a kind of ambassador for the company, we were trying to figure out a suitable title. And uh, I came up with that. And and I thought, well, that's a little bit too, that's a little pretentious. But I, I have a friend who's a real theologian and a real philosopher. And he said it was okay that I had enough uh, chops to go ahead and call myself director of philosophy. So that's what we landed on. I think it's great. And actually, from what I know about Patagonia, you are a, a company that is the a great example of the adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast, and culture has to be uh, underpinned by a philosophy. So, <laughs> you know, a sense of who you are and where you're going and what you're doing in the world. And I, I think that that's an interesting phrase because it, it is so true. But also, I think one of the things that's that has happened with Patagonia over time is that we've uh, developed a strategy very much in line with our, our culture. So the, the culture at this point really helps to realize the strategy. So say a little more about that. That's actually a, a sort of wonderful way of, one of the things I want to ask you about, just to tie it in more more broadly, is, you know, Patagonia starts in the 70s and it, as a, you know, it was, was a $300,000 country company to over a, or around a billion now. Those are, that's a long time. Yeah. There are lots of companies that started in the 70s that have not survive. So I, I'd love to hear you talk about uh, both the culture and the strategy as part of how you have evolved. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we started out as a climbing equipment company. Right. And I, and I, the, the founder of the company was a climber. 
and initially started making gear because he couldn't find the kind of equipment that he and his friends needed to do these new big wall climbs in the late 1950s and early 60s in uh, Yosemite. Hmm. Then I right. think that we got our start as a climbing equipment company was decisive for the culture because you don't make kind of good, better, best climbing gear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> a short fall, a long <laughs> yeah, exactly, fall. Or no. medium fall, exactly. <laughs> right. And, and when we got into the clothing business, partly to support the climbing business because we we had great market share and we had an excellent reputation, but it was a small world. When we got into clothing, I, 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 I think that we thought we were easing the pressure on ourselves that uh, clothing would be a much easier business. Uh, didn't involve uh, steel and iron and the uh, inventory didn't rust. But I, I think the habit we formed from making climbing gear carried with us into the clothing business so that we really didn't know how to run a business that didn't care about the quality of what we were making. And second, because most of the employees were climbers and surfers, there was a strong sense from the beginning, this love of shared love of wild places of wilderness. Mm. And so from very early on, we started giving 1% of our sales to grassroots environmental causes. Hmm. But we didn't, it took us much longer to actually look at the supply chain and how we produced our clothes because we were essentially a design and marketing brand. So we would design our clothes, inspect them and color them and pass them off to the people who were making the clothes in factories. And they dealt with the ordering right. of the cotton and the, and the spinning of that into fiber and then went to the mills to be woven or to be knit into, into a shirt or a pair of pants. But we didn't really know what went on once we passed those specs off and passed off our purchase orders. And it was only in the late 1980s that we started to find out the environmental implications of using conventionally grown cotton, that the intensive use of chemicals uh, actually in mm. growing cotton actually made it a more harmful product environmentally than polyester or wool, or rather polyester or nylon oh that came out of an oil well. Right. And, right. and that realization, so we, you know, we commissioned an independent study, and then we started to look at this, and we said, you know, it's not just enough to protect wild places. We are responsible for everything that's done on a product that comes out with the Patagonia label. So we have to find out what's happening and we have to make critical changes where we can. And uh, so that led to a switch to organic cotton, very problematic right. uh, for the company because we broke our connection to the supply chain. We bought the cotton from farmers mm. in, uh, in the Central right. Valley and in Texas who had no connection to spinners or to knitters and, and weavers. So we had, to, huh. we had to establish those connections ourselves. We ran into difficulties. Our staff felt overwhelmed. You know, they had to do everything that they had done the previous season. And all right. of a sudden, we're asking them to create a new infrastructure for cotton sportswear. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we always had the culture, but we challenged ourselves first with supporting environmental causes and then with identifying things that we needed to do in the supply chain. But if you looked at the company structurally, even as late as 15, 16 years ago, 
I could have told you, okay, we've got lots of different forces in this company. We've got the tree huggers who are getting environmental grants, working really hard to get catalog space to tell those stories. We've got the go-getters who are trying to get as much market share as possible and make products that are 10 years ahead of everyone else's. And then we've got bean counters over here who are looking with suspicion on tree huggers and the product people who, you know, trying to keep us from giving away the farm. And and nobody ever won. So the the beauty of the place was that there was a tension among these three groups. And the the company advanced almost by capillary action over, over the decades so that we had to address all of those problems. We had to stay successful as a business. We had to stay innovative. And we had to not only stay true to our environmental mission, we had to advance it considerably. But I'd say the difference now, and it's really only the past six, seven, eight years, is that if I'm a product manager at Patagonia, I know I have to hit my margins. I have to hit my sales. I have to be working with uh, suppliers and universities to come up with innovative fabrics. But I also know that I've got to get rid of that persistent, environmentally persistent water repellent that causes damage. I've got to make more of my products in a fair trade certified factory. And I own that. I'm not relying on anybody else to slap my hands to get that work done. And that's where I think that the culture has evolved to the point that we now that our strategy now is deeply rooted in the culture. And we're able to do things much more quickly, I think, as a result. We're able to act with everybody on board in a way that wasn't possible 15 years ago. That is fascinating. So so as I hear you, you, you went from being a company to a community, if you think about you and your suppliers and the and having to recreate the supply system, a community bound by a, a set of values, uh, and then those values in turn become so deeply inculcated that they they become your strategy in terms of performance metrics. Yeah. I mean, that's really very interesting. Would you describe it as a, I know you've written a book called The Responsible Company. Would you describe it as a culture of responsibility? Yeah. And and it's interesting, you know, we chose the word the responsible company rather than, and not holding ourselves as the example, but as a as an advocate for responsible business, because we felt that everyone, not everyone could be sustainable, including our, ourselves, but everybody could be responsible. Everybody hmm. could take responsibility for their practices. In, in many cases for businesses, really finding out what's done, what you're doing, because you're, you're, you, the supply chains are so deep. Even at this point, we know that there's much that goes on that we don't know yet. But you're responsible for trying to find out, which is important. You know, when you mentioned community, this David Morris, who runs um, or, or who founded and no longer runs, but still active with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, once mentioned that an organization really has has three aspects. And, and one is to be a community, and one is to be an institution to keep itself well-governed. Right. And the third is for companies and organizations that have a purpose, the third element is to be a movement. Huh. Huh. And, and I, I think that those three things really are, are, are true of Patagonia at this point. That's fascinating. 
Uh, I love that idea. I want to push a little more on the how this helped you navigate the many twists and turns of markets and business cycles since the 70s, because I was talking to uh, Cecilia Munoz uh, ab- right. about resilience in the nonprofit sector. She, for a long time, was with the Council uh, for of La Raza, uh, you know, a human rights yeah. organization for the Hispanic community. And she really said that having that North Star, you know, having a very clear sense of what you were about was yeah. what ha- had helped them weather some pretty dramatic cuts in funding and changes in environment. And I, I wonder if you think similarly that that sense of, of larger purpose has, has helped you weather much more mundane <laughs> profit and loss questions. No, I, I think that that's really true. And I don't know if you're aware, I was with the company for about 20 years before we defined what our business philosophies were, how we wanted to do business. And before we we adopted a mission statement in 1991, which was uh, build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. And at the time, I was... I was opposed. I thought I hated mission statements. Uh, <laughs> I know why. I've tried to create them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's that distance between aspiration and an existing practice. And then the question is, how deeply are you going to commit to your aspirations within the mission statements? So right. we're, we're most businesses, the, the, you know, the mission statements are hedged so deeply yes. that you, when, when you read them, you say, okay, these are people who are saying, this is the virtue we want to signal to the world. <laughs> <laughs> what we'd like to do if life didn't get in the way. <laughs> if, when li- Yes, but when life gets in the way, we're not going to do it yet. Right, right, so right. when we came up with this mission statement, I thought, well, I can live with this second clause, cause no unnecessary harm. I thought, you know, that, that reflects the present reality. What I found was, I found that I had been wrong, that the mission statement was really critical. Um, and it, what happened over the next 20 years is that we really began to inhabit that mission statement. And it's a mouthful to uh, recite, but right. everyone knew those three clauses huh. and everybody consulted that. That was kind of the basic, that was the North Star of the company. And then last year, Ewan came, we started talking to some of us and saying, you know what? We've got to change the mission statement. And I took a deep breath. And thought, oh. <laughs> it took me 27 years to get used to the last one. But right. <laughs> and he said, no, I just want to change it to we're in, we're in business to save the home planet. Huh. And I thought, oh, I don't know about that. You know, it, it sounds like greenwashing to me. But we went ahead and adopted it. And it didn't take me 27 years to get to like this one because what I noticed immediately was a change among the employees, and also among the customers in terms of expectations. All of the employees are looking, okay, I've got my, I'm working on my Alpine line for 2020. And is it in line with this new mission statement? How should it be in line? Hmm. What can I do differently? And so I think that that is critical to have a North Star, to have it be clear to everyone. And if it's communicated, if it's really deeply engaged in the culture, by the culture, I think it provides a kind of strategic discipline. When you communicate that internally and externally and use it as the means by which you choose what you're going to do, it helps you avoid the kind of sidetracks right. that especially nonprofits go through. 
you know, mission creep and yes. exit funder wants this, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it's critical for both businesses and for nonprofits to identify that, that singular purpose, but not just to identify it, but to communicate to live it. it, live it, and to communicate it in the same way to everyone. So, you know, you don't close the door and say to someone, well, we don't really mean it right. for you, we mean it for them. I, I couldn't agree more, although, it, uh, you know, it, often nonprofits grow precisely because uh, funding pushes in different directions. Yeah. And, the, and then the further, the more, more diverse and disparate you get, the harder it is to pull people uh, into one. But I, I do agree. I, you and might, there are legitimate changes of direction. Yes, and that's yes. Clearly, one of the things that's happened with us. Right. Um, although I would love you to talk about uh, a, a situation, as far as I have heard it, where you really did live your principles by changing one of your products. That early on, you when you were making the climbing equipment, you made uh, pitons that were actually, you know, damaging rocks. That when you hammer a, a one in, it widens the crack, uh, and that you then actually sort of had to abandon that product in favor of, of one that was less environmentally damaging. So I, I would love for you to tell the story. That was also just a critical development in the company, and I think it... it it made possible 15, 20 years later, our, our change to organic cotton. It, it was precisely mm. as you described that the, the product for which we were famous was the hard steel piton. And the problem that developed as climbing became more popular every time one of these pitons was hammered into a crack, it widened it slightly. And so mm. Evo and his business partner at the time are looking at this and say the very way we make our living is destroying our sport and desecrating the rock and is there an alternative is an alternative possible and there was because the british right. climbers used a different system they used these aluminum bolts or not bolts but what we call chocks they're little pieces of aluminum that you could sling to a rope or a or a piece of wire and you could twist that in a crack without hammering it and then you could remove it without oh interesting hammering. so it didn't affect the rock uh-huh and it was a huge investment right. To, for a very tiny company, I think we were at that $300,000 stage you described. But we, we right. did that and, and we, we put out a catalog, which was our first major catalog with a 12-page article. Huh, that's uh, demanding. Exactly. <laughs> yes. The article was you know part manifesto saying, okay, this is why we need to change, as climbers, we need to change our practices. And part uh, user's manual explained right. how to use them. And uh, the interesting thing, it, so I uh, that catalog went out June 72. 70% of the business was pitons. I came wow. to work in March 1973. 70% of the business was chocks. That's extraordinary. So, yeah. So it changed practices. Right. Know, discussed by every climbing club at the base of every route. And that was a lesson we learned that we couldn't apply for decades but it was something that it taught us that if we come to learn something and feel strongly about it, can make a change that we can persuade others to come along with us. And I think that that's really been the basis of the company ever since. It was certainly the basis of our change to organic cotton and what we did subsequently. That is really striking. I mean, the, the change, and the, but the fact, again, that you were a company within a community, originally the community of climbers and then then building a larger one, but that clearly you were kind of almost a public forum, which is fascinating. Yeah. You know, we, we, we treated our customers as equals and as friends. And, and in the climbing business, it was easy because they 
practically were friends. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's a small community. It's bigger now, but exactly. <laughs> it is still. Um, have you applied that kind of open communication with with other audiences? I mean, for instance, oh, yes. your suppliers. Yes, we have, and, and it, it's interesting. For a while, we tried to adopt what were known as best practices in the industry. And so we developed quite a large supplier base trying to get good prices and deliveries and all that. And what we what we discovered was that the more suppliers we had, the, the more shallow the relationships we had with them. And that the kind of work we were doing really required a close working relationship. So we, in about 2005, I think we, we cut the number of suppliers from 100 to 55 more than 100 to 55. And give you an example, of, it goes back to the cotton story. The basic challenges we faced when we bought cotton from farmers, they had no relationship to spinners. The spinners are the ones who create the yarn. And when we went to spinners directly, they said, we hate organic cotton. It, <laughs> it gums up our machines. We lose money on it. And we found somebody in Bangkok who we posed the problem. And he said, well, let me try something. So what he did was he lowered the temperature in on the factory floor, on the mill floor. And when he lowered the temperature, it eliminated the problem of the gumming up the machines. And we went to him later and we said, why did you do this for us? You know? Nobody else would talk to us. He said, well, I guess I'm a secret environmentalist. Huh? Wow. And we found that more and more that when we work with our suppliers on the basis of values, that they also talk about culture, they come along and they do things that they didn't think were possible. And they understand that there's a business at the end of the process. That is very like the way Alice Waters created a community of mm -hmm. farmers at Chez Panisse originally in in terms of going out to farmers and saying, will you grow these things and I will create the market for it and getting resistance, but gradually creating a, a, not just a market, but an ecosystem. That's, that's really fascinating. That's a great analogy. Well, I'll tell you another story. So there's a wonderful man named Wes Jackson, whose 50 year project has been to bring the Great Plains back to life. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's based in uh, the Land Institute in, in Salina, Kansas. More than two decades ago, he developed uh, a hybrid perennial wheatgrass that has roots that go 17 feet deep into the ground. And if you can imagine that, you know, just you're creating the perfect environment for all the microbes and fungi to form topsoil, tremendous potential now for sequestering carbon, drawing it back into the ground. And we said, oh, Wes, this is great. Where can we buy some? And he said, oh, you can't buy it. And I said, we just said, why not? And he said, well, no one will grow it. He says, I go to the farmers and they say, I, I don't have anyone to sell it to. So what we did is we partnered with a brewery in uh, Portland to make a beer using Kernza. And <laughs> so we got the first 200 acres of Kernza planted. And then we got some cereal com companies interested because if they use a very small percentage in their cereal. They can plant thousands of acres and with this potential to sequester carbon. So it, I think it's going back to the Alice Waters and an analogy, this is this is where business can can be a good player in society. That we can if you create a market and and not all markets are are bad markets, you create good products that people want and need you can help solve environmental and social problems. And business can do this in a way that's self-sustaining because those products support exactly. themselves and you don't have to have grants and you don't have to raise taxes to do it. Exactly. 
but you have to stimulate demand again by by really finding those initial um yeah you have to have a product yeah. firms and, and companies yeah, that will do that. That is a wonderful story. So let me shift gears a bit to uh, resilience and, and good business practice even more broadly, more internally, because mm-hmm. you, as you said at the outset of the interview, you've done a lot of different things at Patagonia. You've led sales and marketing and editorial, and you, you've had teams of eight, teams of 65. And I read that one of your biggest challenges was grappling with the tensions that existed between departments across mm-hmm. the company. And I know you've you've thought a lot about this. I think all of us have siloed organizations. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible not to. Uh, and But at the same time, we know we have to, to work as one. Yeah. We have to have integration. And yet, that's not always a productive tension. Right. No, <laughs> so I, I guess my yeah. question is how you... How you prevent those kinds of tensions uh, from being the centrifugal force that really can cause your whole organization to fly up apart at the most extreme or less extreme yeah. is simply to be much less productive and much less effective. I, I think part of the answer goes back to what we were talking earlier about North Star and also about communicating to your internal customers, to your employees, the same way you communicate outside. It was it was a lesson I learned when we developed the Footprint Chronicles, which is an interactive website that hmm. shows uh, the origins of our products, how they're made. And in the early days, we talked about, okay, this is what we're proud of. And then oh, we talked great. about, this is what we don't like about what we do. And this is what we hope to do next. And what I found, we created this for customers and we created it for NGOs and people who are studying the company. But what I found was that it was really useful for employees. And I should have realized this because at the time that we created it, I had worked at the company for 35 years. And when I started to work on this project, I learned so much about how the clothes were made Mm. and produced because I'd always been on the selling and the marketing. But what happened is other employees had the same experience that I did, that they, so that the questions they became and the challenges became more intelligent. It wasn't, oh, so-and-so is doing such Mm. and such and that's, you know, that's just going to take us down. It was, oh my you know, we're doing this and we ha- we're facing this challenge. So all the water cooler conversation got to be a lot smarter. Um, right, right. So ha- and, and when, you have an, when you have a North Star that everyone is agreed upon, that also helps you, gives you a basis for resolving disputes outside the question of power struggles between small, small groups. <laughs> I, I just think that that's, that's critical. There's a there's a, a a wonderful woman named Monica Sharma who worked for the UN for 20 years who persuaded the Imam of Cairo to declare a fatwa against female genital mutilation. Oh my, that's that's a huge achievement. The way she, among others, but the way she did this was to point out to persuade that the that the norms that uh, the norm of female genital mutilation was in violation of basic Islamic values. And so I think when right. you know, people get used to certain norms and practices and when you bring it back to values, is this in line with our purpose as an organization and with what we're, what we're all doing, then I think that you can unknot problems much more quickly than if you're solving them through 
infighting. Yes. And it, I, I often try to accomplish that by saying, you know, what are the overall goals, right? Before it's sort of the, the exactly. let's expand the pie yeah. before we decide, you know, who's how we're going to distribute it. But what right. really are we trying to accomplish here? And then often people will become, uh, right. you know, less turf conscious, less less wary that something is going to be taken from them uh, and, in and really a different different side of their nature yeah. comes out. That's very money helpful. and time are always scarce. And that when people start to yeah. to um, do battle over money and time, it's a battle over scarcity. But aspiration yes. is large and purpose is large. <laughs> and, I love that. Uh, so if you concentrate it there, it, I think you get places. That is something with a national lesson, I think. Yes. In other words, that the the sense that the country has no common aspiration and purpose means that it's all about who gets what, uh, and you know it's not enough to have aspiration and purpose, but without it, uh, you 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 are immediately carving up right. um, something that there's not enough in the first place. Right, and that aspiration and purpose re- relates to the values that people hold really dearly and often close to the vest because they feel that they have to leave those values at home when they go to work. Right. Well, I think that's exactly one of the things that companies like Patagonia are proving wrong. And I want to ask about another place you're proving the conventional wisdom wrong. I've known about Patagonia for a long time from friends who are Mm -hmm. climbers. And of course, now you're you're well known. But I've also known about you because of my writing on work and Uh family and uh, the ways in which the two actually should be reinforcing right. one another rather than than somehow being in eternal competition. And you all have just been way ahead of the of the game. Um, and so I, I want to talk about your overall philosophy there with families. But I want to start with your one of your found. I guess your founder Ivan Schwinar wrote this book called "Let My People Go Surfing." Right. And I remember hearing about it. it was really the this you know if the if the waves are good. Go surfing. And of course, you know, I'm sitting here right now in Washington. That is blasphemy <laughs> or heresy or some, some really, really terrible thing. The idea that, Hey, it's a gorgeous day. Go see the cherry blossoms. <laughs> so, um, I wonder, you know, how do you think about, you're clearly successful, but what is the, how do you think about the connection between telling people to go surfing and your need for high productivity? A lot of companies are doing this now. We're not, we're not the only ones. I, I think if you if you trust your employees, especially people who have families and are are balancing, people work hard at Patagonia and they work long hours. And they may go surfing before work and or yep. after work or take a break in the middle of the day, but then they're often on, on email late at night. I work with two working parents, and I see what, each with two two children under five, and I and I see what they do to balance their workload, and I have Jeez. so much respect for it. Um, but there's no, there's no reason, I think, other than a sense of a kind of a false sense of control to have everybody come in exactly at the same time and leave, and leave at the same hour. There was a, there was a joke in, in the nineties about an advertising agency that said, uh, if you, if you don't come to work on Saturday, don't bother to come to work on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> because <laughs> they, had cre- they had created that atmosphere of, you know, nobody, everybody's watching to see who leaves the office first. And, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily translate into 
uh, productive work, it translates into a lot of time at the office. Right. <laughs> and those are not the same thing. In Washington, it's actually called time macho, where there are things like people uh, leaving their uh, jacket on the back of the chair and a light burning so that other people will think <laughs> that they're still there all night. I mean, just totally insane things. But I, I do think the larger point is exactly the difference between presence and performance. Performance is definitely not the same as presence. And, and often the lo people who stay the longest are the least efficient, right? Because, you know, you look at parents who suddenly start getting a great deal of work done in six to eight hours because <laughs> they've yeah. got to get yeah. home. Very much so. Well, so my last question to you sort of takes us back to the uh, maybe a larger frame. You're fond of a quote from a book I adore, Norman MacLean's book, A River oh, Runs yeah. Through It. Yeah. And I've just even thinking of the title of that book, and I feel like I'm in shimmering water and glittering in sunlight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. there's a quote that you say, it is natural for man to try to attain power without recovering grace. And I'd love right. for you to talk about why that quote has so much meaning uh, to you and, and to the work that you do. Well, I, I think it's it's really true. And I think it's a kind of a problem for us all as, as people. It's one of the wonderful things, one of the necessary things that we bring agency to our lives and, and we we want to do things. We want we want to make our mark. Yvon has said that anybody who doesn't believe in change has never worked with his hands. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but but I think there's also this tendency, and probably out of scarcity of from childhood backgrounds or whatever, there's this right. tendency to try to own that when it's when it's a function of a lot of different people and a lot of different forces working for it. Right. So what I, I love the idea of grace because it doesn't come from anywhere. <laughs> it comes from the world or it comes from nature or it comes from God, however you want to define it. But it is something that in order for us to be in balance or to behave well, I think it's always something that after we exert ourselves, we have to understand that we're still a part of something larger. I, I remember it's interesting. I was I was an art critic very briefly on the side for the local paper, huh? and they had right. asked me to do it. And they, they, I said I don't know anything about art. They said, "Do you have a valid driver's license?" And so anyway, I, <laughs> I, I wrote the first review. It was late at night. It was two o'clock in the morning, and I sat in a chair congratulating myself. Right. And and I thought, you know, this is my ego talking to me, and the ego had nothing to do with writing that article. Because when I wrote that article, I had to go well beyond that to actually engage with the material I had seen. And yet the ego wanted to claim credit. And I, th I think that there's something also happens, just happens to us in the world, that that's something to watch out for. Uh, and the way to watch out for it is not to kick yourself, but to reconnect with the trees, <laughs> the sparkling water. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Oh, that, that is lovely. We, we actually have been talking about resilience as a function of the resources you have to draw on in the face of adversity. And that can be your community, yeah. uh, your family, but it can also be your inner resources and your spiritual resources. And so this idea yeah. of grace, and I, I love, I've, I've always just loved the concept of grace. I've never thought about the point that it doesn't come from 
anywhere. I mean, it comes, it, it comes, it doesn't come from human agency. It comes yeah. from uh, something larger and the, to, exactly. to think about yeah. that and yes, to strive for agency, but to accept chance and vicissitudes of fortune, but also the gifts of beauty that we, you know, yeah. the, that unexpected minute where you catch yeah. sight of something beautiful uh, puts us in our place. That is that is lovely and a lovely note on which to end. Thank you so much. And you, you did impressive research. Thank you for that. Uh, well, it was a joy to do. Uh, and, you know, you are the director of philosophy, but really you're also a fabulous storyteller and, and inspiration. So it's really been a pleasure to talk to you. The pleasure's mine. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews.